Hey. What you doing? I'm Brandon Horwin. And I'm Sophie Williams. And today's special guest is... Um, I, yes, I am Eleanor Holdridge and I uh, have directed and will continue to direct a lot of plays. Um, and I teach at Catholic University, which is uh, really wonderful. Well, we are so excited and grateful to have you on the first inaugural podcast episode of Whatcha Doing with Brandon Horwin <laughs> and Sophie Williams. And we're so thankful that just so all of our listeners know that Eleanor was just a extremely helpful and great pioneering force behind getting this yes. project up on its feet. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on today. I'm so excited about the program. I just can't wait to see what happens next. So can you tell us a little bit about your career, both as a theater director and an educator, and just a little bit about how those two journeys began to mend? Sure. Yeah, I guess I didn't want to be a director for a really long time. You know how some people are like, this is what I want to do from the moment, you know, my vocation is this from like junior high school or something. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that I wanted to direct. I was a I danced for a long time and I wanted to be a lighting designer for a long time, like in, in college, but like tracing it back, like when I was a little kid, my mom ran this company called Cadman, which actually produced spoken word records, like way, way back in the day when records were records. And so she was in recording studios. She was a, like a um, Anglophile. So she was, I'm so sorry about my dog. <laughs> this is where we, this is where we are, but she was, she was sort of an Anglophile, which is to me a little bit of a problem these days when you say, oh, Shakespeare can only be done by people with British accents. But I, the, the, the fact is I grew up in recording studios with people like Laurence Olivier and um, John Gielgud. Like there's pictures of me and my twin sister on um, Dame Edith Evans' lap in a recording studio. So I kind of grew up around hearing Shakespeare, you know, not seeing it, but hearing it. And she would play the records a lot and the recordings a lot. And so I think what I would do when I listen to them is imagine the worlds in which what I was hearing took place. You know, so that, so to me, I just wasn't, you know, I didn't necessarily at that age, you know, whatever, um, six, seven, whatever, I understand all of the Shakespeare text, but I understood the story and the language. And so I started to create pictures. So I think that that early process of exercising my imagination was like a little mine, you know, or a little time bomb waiting to happen. So anyway, I graduated college. I was like, oh, I want to make a buck. So I went, um, I got a job in publishing, which is not a good way to make a buck anyway. You know, it was like I was a little assistant director. But I started to become really frustrated. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And I, I saw a lot of theater and I saw a lot of Shakespeare theater. And all I could think of was like, I don't want to, oh, it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. I saw this Midsummer Night's Dream with a friend of mine who also was, was very theatrical, had been done a lot of theater in, in college. Okay, it's so like, it was Yaley's and I ended up going to Yale, so whatever. But like, it was like, basically, you know, talk, um, Bottom played all of the mechanicals and mechanicals were finger puppets. But when Bottom is translated, instead of just ears, they also strapped this like, um, fluorescent green, I'm going to say three foot phallus on him. And then it would like bob around and hit him in the face. And there was like, you know, it was like in this little tiny 
downtown New York theater and there was maybe three people and some guy had brought his son to see Midsummer, and then they walked out like, of course they walked out, like the son was eight years old. And so I started thinking like, I do not need to see another Midsummer Night's Dream. What I wanna see is other classical plays, like little known classical plays. And so um, even though I, by that point I was like, okay, I'm not working in publishing. I'm gonna go work for Jerome Robbins as his assistant. And then I went and worked at the public theater in development, grant writing, all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, I started this theater company to do the little known classics of Shakespeare. I mean, little known classics aside from Shakespeare, like Shakespeare's contemporaries, like, like Marlowe, which, which seems like a lot of people do Marlowe, but no one was doing Marlowe back in the day. And so then we moved the company to Philadelphia. So I was now running a company, but someone had to direct the plays and we didn't have any money. So I just started to direct the plays. So about four years, I was directing, I just directed because someone had to. And then I was, I loved it. You know, like that little, the little time bomb from my youth, like kind of kicked in. I loved working with actors. I loved, I loved, you know, working with the designers to create the elements. And so I did that for like, I don't know, like four years, five years. And then finally I realized I didn't, I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. I mean, we can talk about imposter syndrome until the cows come home, but, but so anyway, so I was like this and the company had reached a certain level and wasn't going to probably grow anymore. So I applied to graduate schools, got into Yale, went to Yale for three years. And then since then, I, when I, after I graduated, I started uh, freelancing. This is a very long story, so <laughs> but this is, you asked for the- It's a great hand. story. It's great. Yeah. So then I freelanced for, I don't know, like 10, 10 years or something. And so the life of a freelancer director in America is not necessarily easy. You don't do a lot of work locally. I mean, if you want to get national national gigs, national exposure, you go on the road. And so I was sometimes on the road directing regionally, um, sometimes eight months out of the year. And you, you know, it's the thing we talk about, like you, you get a company, you have a company and that company is your family. And then you move on to the next gig. And then that company is your family. But after eight or 10 years about that, you have this, all of these ephemeral families and not a home, not an artistic home. So I started to apply for, to universities um, because I wanted to land somewhere, have a base, feel a community around me, pay back to students. And so that brought me to Catholic uh, to teach. That is great. And you it's amazing how you found, I never knew how you found directing through starting a company and just picking up the shows from there. I did and I, I loved it, you know, because. Before that, I was a light design, lighting design too, and, and and lighting design is. I think it's pretty great because it's a it's a little intellectual. You decide what people want to see, and you start, you know, and you collaborate with directors. So in a way, directing was just the next step in sort of seeing and and forming the bigger picture of the world of the play. And what are some of your most favorite projects that you, I mean, over the years, being a freelance director and traveling all over the nation to pursue that craft. Do you have some that stick out to you and you still think about? I do. I think the first, I didn't done like five, but the first 12th night I did, I remember that because it's when everything started to come together. It may have been my first professional equity, whatever um, production, but it was at Shakespeare and Company where I'd worked a bunch. Um, I mean, I sort of interned and assisted directed and it's, but, but then it was like my first big break that Tina Packer, the artistic director gave me. And it, it was just this moment where I really sort of figured out what I was doing. Like I directed a lot of plays, but somehow everything started to click. I had, I had already gone to Yale at that point, but I started to develop my aesthetic. You know, I love plays that have dense classical text 
but also plays in which like you can create a magical world around that, that, that sort of fills um, the audience with a world and kind of some kind of beauty, some kind of, ex you know, ex exploration of the human condition. Yeah. And so now you're the chair of the drama department. Maybe. Yes, I am. <laughs> and how has it been both working as the chair and continuing your career as a freelance director around the United States? And how has it has it been challenging? You know, how has that process been to kind of um, tie those two together as a big part of your life going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tricky. I've only been chair for two and a half years now. Um, and so when I was just teaching, like it was a balance, like I, I would take one or two gigs a year away from school and I managed to sort of juggle it and, and come back. But being chair is, is more problematic. And so I think there was a year when I took too many gigs you know, doing the work of chair is really challenging. You know, and one of the things that I really want to do and am proud of is putting together this new BFA program we have, because I think um, what we decided, or we've been talking about it for years and no one did anything. So I became chair and I was like, okay, I, I would really like to make this happen. I think people want a professional degree coming out of undergraduate education now. And, and I realized that we could actually create, forge, more um, more skilled actors if we could offer more acting classes, which we can in the non-professional degree track of, of the BA. There's just too many requirements. But so fi finding a professional degree where we can, you know, you can, you take philosophy and you take religion and you take English and you take some core classes, but you can really then have an acting, a movement and a voice class every single semester. And then to me, it's a degree for now in the future because we've added this television and it's a BFA in theater, film and television. And so adding the film and television part, I think is really important, especially in DC, because I think we all understand in a way that to be a professional working actor, uh, you either have to also teach or be on film and television to actually forge a living for yourself. And so I feel like this, I'm so proud of it. We start our first class next year. And so that's been, that's been a great objective. You know, we talk about acting, you know, you have an action and objective. So that this, with this objective of, of founding this BFA and getting it started, you know, they, it's great to have that objective to drive all the actions towards them. Absolutely. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, so we'll see. We have a bunch of applicants already and I'm looking forward to the audition. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So I'm curious, you were among, as like to my knowledge, um, one of the first people to transfer an in-person rehearsing production uh, to a more virtual medium. So I just, I just like to know, like, how did you, as a director, implement your, your vision to a fully realized production via Zoom recording? Yeah, so that was, it was measure for measure. We were, we had rehearsed it for one and a half, maybe two weeks at Catholic, and we all left on spring break. And we were like, see ya. And then, of course, we got the news that we weren't going to come back together. So, yeah, I needed, I, I was like, well, people need something to work on to get through these times. Like at, at the time, I think we thought we were gonna be in lockdown for like maybe three, three months, maybe two months. I don't know. We kept thinking we were gonna come back. So I felt like we had to do something, but I asked the cast first if they would be willing to do it and they were. And so, I mean, I think that I was learning so much at the time, like how to put 
how to how to get Shakespeare on tape, how to tell a story. So I made I made edits. We we reworked the script a lot, which is great because Shakespeare's in public domain, so you can do that. And really tried to create form a story based on the on the actors and looked at links for what it was like to be living now in the text of Measure. You know, the sense of isolation, the sense of choice being really important, the sense of stakes in that play were really helpful. Awesome. That's a, that's a really great answer. I was genuinely very curious <laughs> about that. Um, so just bouncing off of that question, um, what did you change from your first virtual production, uh, if anything, to your most recent virtual production? Okay, well, I've only done two. <laughs> well, <laughs> two. I've, done a, I've, done something, I've done a little little video thing, mm. but a lot. Like I was just, I, I like everyone else, our first rehearsal was one of the like first or second Zoom things I'd ever done. So just sort of figuring out what the medium can do or not um, was tricky. I think we did have some video editors, but we, we we added the sound. But But I think that there were moments of like, just seeing faces for very long in the Zoom format is not is not engaging. So to look for other ways of making it more interesting and not just rotating the tiles around, which we've seen a lot, finding ways to do a hybrid, I think, of film and Zoom. You know, so so in in film, you know, you often have two cameras and so you can see people's faces from very, you know, intercut with various, you see this side and then you cut to something else or you fade to something else. So in in the Sa'ira song cycle project, I, I really wanted to do a do a hybrid of filming and zooming, but in the zoom having having the performers take different different shot, different takes, let's say, of the material and then jumping back and forth between takes. And it would depend on the story of the song. I worked with it with the performers to say, which story do you want to tell with this song in this present in your present right now in the time of COVID. And so working with them to come up with stories and the process was I I asked them what they wanted to do. Based on that, I came up with a storyboard based up a storyboard of this happens and this happens in terms of the various shots. Then they would they would film themselves on their cameras or I would or I and Michael Stolbark, who was the assistant director, would film them and then intercut them together. But what's really interesting is that in that process, you learn that just like just like directing a play, you have to you have to react to what you have. So you have a storyboard, which is great. You get all the material material from the storyboard. You're like, mm, my original story isn't going to work with the footage that I've got. So you have to be open to like what's coming at you in terms of the film. Just like in a in a directing process, you have to be aware and interested. Like, oh, this actor is now doing this. Like, I don't want to be stuck with this idea that was in my head. I have to respond to the moment and to what the actor is doing and what the actors are doing in relationship to each other. So it's a very similar, but but quite different at the same time. And I mean, Brandon was in my class when we were critiquing it. And I love critique. I love I love getting response, even if it's not all positive, especially if it's not all positive, because I feel like I'm learning tons of new things, which is amazing. And that I want to try and get better and better at it, even if in a year or two, I, I just go back to doing regular plays. But I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that with what I'm learning in this time, which is so thrilling and exciting, that it won't somehow blend or affect the work that I do on plays in the future. So just going off script, I have a question. So what exactly was your vision for Saira during the time of COVID? Because Brandon and I, actually, we've been discussing recently about, you know, trends in theater over history. And, you know, in my classes, I've learned, you know, it kind of flips from, you know, it's reflecting the times, 
it's escapism. So, you know, in my viewing of Sai Ra, you know, I was no longer in COVID. I was in France, you know, <laughs> having like a great time. It was like an awesome, like form of like, oh, I'm, I'm somewhere else. This isn't real. Um, so. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of wanted that in a couple ways. I wanted it to be now and exactly what you're talking about, so that you know, and it's called Saira. So it's France. We're, we're in France. We're not in France. Where are we really? Um, you know, there's so much. I love the French language section. So I guess a couple things. Like I, the the, the framing device was Maria Heitman singing this song. You know, um, don't leave me. She's walking the, the opening credits, she's walking through campus. So I like the idea of acknowledging that campus is closed down. And then she comes across this poster of Saira. And I think it's like she imagines or, or regrets or wishes for that life to happen that was going to be in this play that was maybe in Harkey, because you, you see her outside Harkey theater. And that then through that, you go into these very different there's very, all the, all these videos of the different songs are very, very different. And so the idea is that it's people maybe alone, but coming together with the, with their very different ideas. So some are, some are celebratory, some are sad, some are wistful, some are funny. Um, and I very much wanted it to be all of those things. And then in the very end, you you know, and maybe it's a little too, I don't know, first year film school, but I'm in my first year of film school, I guess. So um, she's, you know, you see her walking past the ghost light. And to me, that's just a metaphor that, you know, you turn the ghost light when you leave the theater, but at some point you're going to come back in and fill it. So that that's what I wanted to do with that. Um, the other thing I want to say about the production is that I've seen in the past, I don't even know how long it's been, but in the past five months, I've become very aware of what is the audience interaction. And I think as an audience in a theater with people surrounding you, with the idea that anything could happen on the stage. There's a kind of presence, I think, that as an audience person you have that is deadened after just seeing something that's pre-recorded that's coming at you through Zoom. It's a little different from, I think, a live streamed something like a play reading or something. But anyway, I think that's why I wanted to come up with this interactive component. So if you haven't seen it, like this is where the audience can pick what scenes they want, what language they want it in, because I very much wanted the audience to feel like I have to be involved to do the next thing. Like the audience has to engage with it, which I think is just so important right now, because in a way you don't have that engagement of the live theater experience with the audience and the performer, but you can have that engagement by having them pick something so that there's, you know, in the theater, you can choose where you look. This is, you can choose what you're going to see next or how you're going to experience. Like it's so, I had so much fun, especially in the ones where you are going back and forth between languages, which I saw many times. And sometimes I would just be, and, and the Marie, Marika was so brilliant in how she sound edited it, like it matched up perfectly. So to go from each language to language, anytime I wanted to, I thought it was thrilling. That is excellent. I mean, it really was a superb production and it felt different than anything I had seen thus far because of that interactive component and because that my participation felt, as you said, like I needed to get to the next step by being involved somehow. And I think it was a masterful way of putting it on the screen, but yet allowing us to still have a voice within the art that we were a part of. Yeah, when I first started thinking about it, it was very frightening in a way, because as a director, I always think my idea is to author the action of the story. And so as, as that, that means I'm creating the arc of it. That was the challenge, right? How, do, how is there still an arc to the pieces when the audience can choose the order? 
So that's why I think that's why we came up with chapters. So I could make sure that they weren't choosing the two super sad songs right next to each other. So e each chapter had a lot of different, different kinds of songs so that the dances were spread out. The three, there were only three dudes. The three dudes were spread out among the chapters. Um, so just so, just so that I felt like there was, there could be some arc even though there was choice within it. And that's great because you sort of answered my next question in regards to being a director in the industry. And do you think, you know, there will be a time when we're all going to be able to go back in the theater together as if, you know, we have a large cast and everybody can be together and performing for a live audience. But you had already said that you're going to take the skills that you've learned in terms of, you know, a virtual platform that, you know, they do hold merit for you, that you're going to take these skills and, and, and plan to use them in the future regardless. So pairing that with what advice do you have as a director within the industry, as well as an educator currently working with um, college students studying the arts for, you know, students that are trying to break in the industry or, you know, young artists that are, are trying to continue to, you know, uh, mold their craft in a completely what it feels like everlasting shutdown world. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would just say do work. You know, what's amazing is is that you anyone can take videos on their cell phones. So to actually get people's people are hung, you know, people are hungry for work and connection. So to find projects and be in projects that then can create, you know, so that you're actively doing something. You know, that's why I'm so excited about this podcast, you know, because you're actually engaging, discussing, discussing the arts, discussing how, how being an artist is, what that means for someone. And I think that by continuing to be involved, you know, not just sitting home and waiting for the next thing to happen, but to pitch people things, to, to just create stuff. And, and I, what's really wonderful is that as long as the, what you're doing is in the public domain. We're finding that actors and performers now will have a reel. Like coming from this, you actually have a piece of video that you can say, here's what I did. So that it's really helpful, I think, moving forward. And, and, and exciting. I think if you don't embrace where we are right now, we're going to be, we're, we're going to be dinosaurs whenever we, whenever we, whenever we walk back into the open air again with each other. So, so yeah, I think, I think just do work, you know, just keep doing. I definitely feel that right now. Just like, I think that's essentially why we started doing this just because, oh God, like I have nothing to do. You know what I mean? Like I have classes and everything, but normally during this time, like I keep getting memories on like all my social media about like, you were in this show this year, you were in this show this year. And I'm like, great, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> you know, I'm like wearing sweatpants right now in my doing <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> So yeah, I definitely feel that just having, you know, some sort of creative outlet because we are just like creative people that constantly need to be doing something, God, like anything. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And I think just to go back to that sense of like, what is like, like as artists, like the idea of exercising our imagination. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like sometimes I find like many artists, if they're not exercising their imagination towards something positive, start like going crazy because your imagination is still your best tool and it's going to crazy places. So I think this is a good time to do that. Yes. So just congratulations on all of your virtual productions. They've been like huge successes in the drama department. Is there anything else coming up 
that, you know, in the drama department or outside that you'd just like to promo on here really quickly? Sure, I would. There's a couple of things in the drama department, you know, we're going to be doing, well, War of the Worlds, I think, is this weekend. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be exciting in the radio play. And then the socially distant play festival at the drama department is coming up and I'm going to be directing one of the 10 plays. Um, and I think that's going to be a hybrid of lots of things. And it seems really exciting. Um, we're talking about doing um, Yerma. I mean, I'm not, I have nothing to do with that directing, but, but it would be uh, Natalia Gleason our, our, is going to probably be doing that outside next semester. Yes. Online, but with a live cast. So isn't that exciting? Love, we love Natalia. Oh <laughs> I know. And then I may be doing um, a project with students at University of Maryland in Orlando that should be really exciting outdoor, maybe puppets, like how do you how do you get people to be intimate? And so I'm thinking about puppets, which I've never done before. So yes, exciting too. And then I think there's Pippin. Like so about three, two and a half years ago, I was gonna be doing Pippin, or I was asked to do Pippin at Olney, and then it was postponed, and then it was postponed, and it was postponed. So now it's due to happen in spring 2022. Okay. Exciting. Very I was excited exciting. for that production. Me too. I mean, I hope it happens. <laughs> I sometimes joke that like the Pippin will be too old to play Pippin by the time. We <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, this was incredible. It was so great to launch this series and have you as the, the first guest to come on and offer up some great words for future artists, current students, and just to hear about what you've been doing and all of, and your journey through the arts and education and everything. You're an incredible inspiration to your students, your fellow faculty, and all artists out there who really want to achieve their dreams. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. I just, I love hearing a female perspective. I think a lot of the times at Catholic, you know, I love my male mentors, they're great. You know, they have helped me so much, but, you know, I think for me personally, I've just lacked, you know, a kind of female voice, especially for directing. I'm in the midst of like a directing project at the moment. So it was, what really, is it? Um, it's for center stage. I'm doing a Sondheim cabaret for his, oh, that's, that's thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I just love kind of like hearing hearing people talking about directing, it really just kind of like opens up, you know, a lot of thoughts for me. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you and come back soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just dive bomb your future podcast. Yes. That'll yeah. be great. Thank you so much, Eleanor. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.